0: All right, guys, welcome, welcome to Seize the Moment podcast.
1: Welcome to the podcast that deals with issues of philosophy, psychology, neuroscience and personal development.
0: Yes, so we have a special guest today. His name is Mark White, and he has a book uh, uh, called Batman and Ethics, which we really want to explore and ask a lot of questions about.
1: and so, just to begin, kind of just sort of listing off Mark's wonderful credentials, so Mark is the Chair of Philosophy at the College of Staten Island, which is a part of the QD system, and he also wrote The Virtues of Captain America, A Philosopher Reads, Marvel Comics, Civil War, and of course, obviously, the book that we'll be discussing today, Batman and Ethics.
0: Yeah, so, um, hi Mark, <laughs> this All is right. Alan. Hi. Hey.
1: I wanted to ask
0: you uh, a question because I was doing a little research on your book before the podcast. Okay. Um, why, why doesn't Batman kill the Joker?
2: <laughs> well, my, my contention is that... Well, let me, let me frame why that question is interesting. Um, the, the, the way I wrote the book is the book is split into two halves. Mm. The first half deals with what Batman tries to do. In other words, what's his mission? Uh, The second half deals with what he will or will not do in pursuit of that mission. And the overall theme of the book is that he tries to do so much in so many different ways at the same time that he, he encounters inevitable moral conflicts. And he can't do everything he wants to do simultaneously he has to make some compromises and there are compromises that aren't even consistent among amongst themselves and and the biggest one the 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 most important compromise is that he refuses to kill even his most homicidal foes and this is is problematic in the context of his mission being to save all the lives in gotham city from the scourge of crime at the same time, he's got certain foes, a small percentage of them, but a, a significant number, mm-hmm. that are, you know, mass murderers, the chief among them being the Joker. So, these, these two elements of his moral code run up against each other. On the one hand, he wants to save as many people as he can, but on the other hand, here you have a foe that's killing many, many, many people, and he won't take the one step that's guaranteed to save all these people he's killing.
0: Huh. Well, which and, is- and I
2: argue that the reason he doesn't do this, and, and the reason that he most often gives in the comics, is that he doesn't want to become the type of person he, he hunts. If I kill somebody that'll be crossing a line I'll never come back from. I don't want to be as bad as them. My mission started with my parents being murdered. I can't take that step myself. And what all these statements boil down to is, is, is if you take a very critical view, which I, which I have to in the book, is that he chooses not to kill the Joker to preserve his own sense of self and his own moral virtue, even though that means he's going to fail to satisfy the mission as much as he otherwise could.
0: So would you say that that's like um, a clash of philosophies, uh, utilitarianism versus... Like this sort of Kantian view of like this moral code, ethics. Um, I guess like could you could you speak on that? Because I could see, like from a utilitarian perspective, how you want to do the greatest good for for the many, right? And that would actually mean killing the joker. because if you kill but- the joker, that means you would stop a whole bunch of deaths that he's gonna do no matter what, and that's one life in exchange for many lives. Right. However, Batman's moral code—you uh, can see this this conflict. He mm-hmm. he 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 doesn't want to kill anybody. He doesn't want to become uh, like his greatest foe. He doesn't want to become the um, the evil. Like uh, I think of that quote, for example, uh, "Be the change you want to see." I know it's mm-hmm. not exactly mixed no. It's good. It's good. Yeah. I mean. What, to become evil, is that really the – I mean to kill someone and like go against your moral code, is that uh, worth it? Because does that really get you the end that you, you think you, you need or that's uh, required? Well, that, that's one way to put
2: it. And definitely the book, you know, the, the two halves of the book do correspond roughly to utilitarianism and deontology, uh, especially the first half being about the mission and what he's trying to do. And I actually talk about in the various chapters in the first half why the way he defines his mission is sort of a self-compromised or a self-limited utilitarianism. And is this reasonable? Is this ethical itself? For instance, the the uh, fact that he limits most of his activities to Gotham City, and you know, a utilitarian. You know, Peter Singer is, fa- is famous for saying that people in first world countries care too much for themselves and for other residents of first world countries and care insufficiently for residents of third world countries. Mm-hmm. Here we have Batman saying, I'm going to save all the lives in Gotham City, and that's even a more severe constraint than Peter Singer criticizes. And I, I there's a section in the book where I go on to talk about, is this reasonable? Uh, there's other things, You know, he fights crime, he doesn't fight poverty, okay, except in his charitable donations as Bruce Wayne, which I also talk about. So the the first half is very much in the in the the realm of utilitarianism, and the, the second half about the acts he will or will not take obviously lends itself more to deontology. And I introduce each school at the beginning of each half of the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, You're absolutely right. You know, a a very simplistic utilitarian would say, here's an act you could take that could fulfill the goal and you won't take it, why not? So that lends you to think that Batman must be a strict deontologist, at least when it comes to killing. But throughout the second half of the book, I argue, yes, he won't kill, but there's a lot of things he will do that are otherwise morally questionable. You know, he uses extreme violence. Uh, He uses extreme violence that often rises to the level of torture. He breaks the law with impunity. These are all things that are typically, in the the context of deontology, thought to be wrong. And these are certainly things that he doesn't even blink at. In fact, you know, there's a lot of evidence in the comic I go over in my book that he enjoys the violence. And uh, Leslie Tompkins, who's, who's throughout decades of the comics is sort of his, the angel on the shoulder, or another element of his conscience, mm-hmm. he and she have, have great discussions that I quote at length in the book uh, about you know, his role in perpetuating the cycle of violence in Gotham City. And you know, she says, I hate what you do, but I'm glad you do it, because you know, we need it. And until we get to a, the, a time when we don't need it, I have to admit you're necessary.
1: And so it's interesting because I wonder, what do you think that prevents him from taking the next step? Because, I mean, essentially from kind of the discussion that we're having, it seems as though for Batman, kind of morality exists on the spectrum. And there's this sort of threshold that he isn't willing to cross. But I'm wondering, why not? I mean, if he's able to do all of these other things, why not sort of kill somebody for the greater good?
2: Well, that's that's the point I make, is, yeah. is his the, the way he combines the various elements of his moral code are not consistent. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the broader the, the, the broadest argument of the book is that even though Batman is a, a you know a great person, it's a hero he again he tries to do too much it's not that he doesn't do enough he tries to do too much tries to hold himself to too many different and inconsistent elements of a moral code mm-hmm. that he by necessity fails yeah. And what I say is that he needs to you know uh, better, consolidate the elements of his moral code and, and, you know, in the meaningful sense of integrity. He needs integrity between the elements of his moral code. And what I try to do is, you know, every time I write one of these books, I try to to make it applicable to the reader. And I say, you know, dear reader, you you and I also have inconsistent moral codes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not like my book on Captain America, I represented him as a moral exemplar. And I said, you know, here's someone we can look up to that has an integrated moral code, that has all the elements of his of his moral personality are in balance and allows him to make uh, difficult calls and, and tragic dilemmas more easily because he's got this bedrock consistent moral foundation to build upon. But Batman doesn't. Right. And in that way, you know, Batman is, it's just another way in which Batman is like, the average person I mean everyone says that Batman is, is such a popular superhero because he's quote-unquote just a guy right you know just a guy with an incredible amount of wealth but other than that just a guy and you know if any of us cared that much we could do the same thing within our means right. and so I say with all these you know sort of normal guy aspects of him again besides his wealth you know the fact that he isn't morally consistent again gives us something to look to and say hey we're we're kind of like him but it's not something to aspire to it's not something to uh, you know reach towards it's something to say hey th- this is why he's a little messed up yeah so- and you know i'm messed up too so this is a way that you know i you know in so in criticizing batman i'm not criticizing batman for the point of doing it I'm criticizing Batman to say, hey, he's a kind of a normal person from this point of view, and we can learn from his inconsisten- inconsistencies to try to make our moral life more consistent. Hmm.
0: And so, did you want to ask? Yeah, uh, so it's kind of like a cautionary tale in a way?
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. And in that way, it's, again, the opposite of my Captain America book, where I just represented him as this moral exemplar. Hmm. And, and the, the issue there was really is he too... Too virtuous? Is he? Is he perfect? Is he? Is it unreasonable to, to aspire to be like Captain America? And I argue that it 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 isn't. That's not a concern. But Batman is the opposite. Yep. Batman. I thought. I thought. Actually, at the end of the book, I have to do some uh, backpedaling in a way, and I have to say, listen, I've been very critical of this guy, but I don't want to make it sound like he's not a good person. I don't want to make it sound like he's not a hero. He is. He could just be an even better hero if he tried to reconcile the various elements of his moral personality
1: and so I mean the thing that we tend to focus on on the show is especially kind of this idea of labeling and kind of like these labels of whether they're good or they're bad essentially kind of we both argue here that they're toxic and so I kind of wondered because we have this big contrast between Captain America and Batman and I mean Captain America in some sense is a very unrealistic sort of as he's supposed to be an unrealistic sort of being or superhero whereas Batman I think if we can kind of sort of you know sort of um, compare him to whatever society is actually like is literally the best of us So I wonder if, if let's say we think of ourselves as sort of moral creatures do you think that it's sort of impossible for us to label ourselves as being let's say good or moral or ethical in any absolute sense knowing that kind of the best of us in this case Batman actually can't be labeled as that
2: oh, uh, yeah a couple you touched on a lot of stuff there uh, your, your general point I absolutely agree we, we, we should be very hesitant to, to apply labels you know absolute's like good or bad or or good or evil or or ethical or unethical or moral or immoral you know i mean we're all human beings we're all of limited strength and limited fortitude i mean kant was very emphatic about this he said only god and the angels are are perfect because they're holy and human beings are are on the one hand we're rational beings but on the other hand we're we're, we're flesh creatures we're animals and there's that constant struggle we as, as much as we may tr- try to do the right thing and adhere to the moral law and follow the duties as laid out by the categorical imperative mm-hmm. you know we can't no one can do it perfectly we have to develop that strength or what he called virtue and and by by practice and by you know acknowledging the moral law and by checking ourselves and and monitoring ourselves we can only try to be better and, and there's ways that he outlines to do that, like, you know, practice and keep it in mind and such. But, you know, no human being can ever be perfect. Yeah. And, of, of course, in the Captain America book, I argue that he's really not perfect. And there's a re- recent video at the NerdSync website where, I, where the, the host, mm-hmm. uh, Scott Niswander, discusses this. And I, I chime in a little bit. He, he draws on my work, which is, which is wonderful. Uh, but, you know... It, you know, true. Captain America is obviously more of a moral exemplar than Batman is, and you know, a case can be made. I I wouldn't make it that he is portrayed as perfect and unreasonable, but on the other hand, what I said during Scott's video was that you know we we need moral exemplars to be better. We, we you know if you're going to look up to somebody, they have to be up there. Yeah. And and the the problem is you know should they be you know too idealized? You know too perfect is not correct but you know if they're too idealized it can become impossible i mean you know we all know that person right we all know the person in our life that that seems almost too good you know they're always helping out they're never doing anything wrong Mm -hmm. and we think wow I, i can never be that person and but but the problem is we don't we don't just give up because of that. You know, if that person can be that good, why can't we? Mm-hmm. And there's nothing about Captain America. I mean, you know, there, there was the super soldier serum and the Vita rays all part of the project rebirth, you know, uh, process that made him physically the ideal, perfect human being. But that, you know, really didn't have that much effect on his moral personality. The reason that was given to him is because he already showed the virtues that he exemplified as Captain America. That just gave him the increased physical abilities to manifest those virtues in the real life. Yeah. I, so I, I don't think his, you know, if we just, you know, obviously no, none of us can be as strong or as fast or as, as you know, skilled uh, combatant as Captain America. Well, the, you know, very few of us, but, you know, we can There's no reason we can't try to be as good as he was because he was that way before the Super Soldier so, so, da, 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 Super Soldier Serum. <laughs> hey,
0: yeah, say it, that ten times fast. I I I, I, so. yeah, so, um, yeah, I I I have to. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I I find that very interesting because just like Batman, uh, Steve Rogers or the Captain America character uh, is uh, he's a normal person as well. Uh, To your point, yeah, uh, before, he he exemplified all those uh, virtues and and, um, integrity before the Serum. And in fact, you could argue uh, that the Serum kind of just highlighted uh, those aspects about him. Because he could have used his power in uh, all kinds of ways, but making the choice to still be virtuous, to to be um, good, to adhere to a certain um, uh, to certain ideals, uh, it's something that we can all do. I don't see why not. We don't have to be the same as him, of course. No, but, no. But yeah, just a normal person who decided to uh, take on that perspective, and we could definitely, in some ways learn from that and apply it
1: ourselves yeah and, yeah. and right. so, so mark just really quickly i wanted to ask you to please for our audience define kind of what the meaning of utilitarianism as opposed to the ontology and obviously the categorical imperative oh, sure. yep. yeah yep.
2: just oh case. wow okay um uh, well um I'm, I'm just afraid my philosopher friends will see this and <laughs> well you left out this point i'm sure it'll be great well, utilitarianism is just generally the the system of ethics that says you should try to maximize the the total amount of good, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know can be happiness, can be you know utility, which is a harder word to define, but just the the good the good in the world, mm-hmm. you know, try to maximize that, and that's your main ethical concern. Uh, deontology would be an opposing school of ethics that identifies the the goodness of actions in the actions themselves so for instance one of the the most um, common acts to compare them on and you know these often agree on the morality or immorality of actions but not necessarily for the same reason Mm -hmm. so we take something like lying Uh, and you know utilitarians would say lying is usually not good because the the outcome is usually bad and, but that leaves room for you know, benevolent lies, white lies, harmless lies. Uh, deontologists would be more, more likely to say that lies are wrong because they're deceptive, yeah. because they're manipulative, because they're dishonest. And that, that kind of punts the football because then you have to say, why are those things wrong? And at the end, a deontologist has to come to some you know, essential moral you know, basis for saying these just like a utilitarian does for having to say the good is the most important thing. Yeah. But the, 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 what I take to be the core distinction between deontology and utilitarianism or consequentialism in general is that deontology locates the moral value of an act in some intrinsic property of the act itself. Mm-hmm. So lying is wrong because there's something about lying that makes it wrong, not because of what happens in the world when you lie. Right. that would be the consequences and that's what a consequentialist would focus on
1: and what is the categorical imperative
2: <laughs> the categorical imperative is Immanuel kant's formalization of the moral law mm-hmm. and it, it results in three anywhere from three to five formula uh you know the most the most commonly known one is the universalization formula mm-hmm. Uh, that says, and, and sorry, Kant friends, I can't recite this word for word, but you know, only take those actions which you can will to be a universal law that you can say, well, you know, only do this thing if you can, you know, make it so that everyone can do it. Right. So in other words, don't carve out exceptions for yourself. Mm-hmm. If you want, if you want to lie about something, then you have to say, well, could everyone lie about this? Would that still make sense? And usually, the the categor, that categorical imperative applied to lying would say, you know, if I lied with impunity whenever it was in my interest and I had to allow that everyone could lie with impunity whenever it was in their interest, then there'd be so much lying that no one would believe anybody which would defeat the purpose of my lie. So it generates an inconsistency. Mm-hmm. And that's why under that formula, lying is wrong. Mm-hmm. The, the the You know, I prefer the, the formula of respect version of the categorical imperative, which says, Act, you know, do not act in such a way that you use another person you use the humanity in another person simply as a means while not at the same time as an end. Right. So in other words, don't use people in a way that's coercive or deceitful.
1: Right. Or, or in a way that's one sided. I mean, because sort of when you kind of go in a little bit into psychology when it comes to narcissism, I mean, for the most part, it's like their argument is usually something along the lines of, well, we all use each other. Yes. I mean, that is to some extent true. But then we all give sure. back to one another. And mm-hmm. that's sort of the thing that a kind of pathological narcissist isn't able to do. He's not able or willing at least to give back to another person.
2: Right. Yeah. Or at least, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be reciprocal in that sense, just as long as there's reciprocal respect. Yeah okay you know i i can use somebody to do me a favor but as long as i don't demand it of them as long as i don't trick them into doing it Mm you know it's nice if i thank them it's nice if i offer to return the favor that's not even necessary Mm -hmm. just if i ask them if i if i ask for their consent to help me you know as as long as we treat each other with basic respect and consideration that's really all that's required because you're right we use people all the time in a trivial sense You know, I mean, just just your average market transaction, buying my coffee in the morning. I use the, the, the barista to get my coffee. The barista or the coffee place uses me to get money. Mm-hmm. But that's all consensual. It's all mutual. It is, that is reciprocal, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, but I don't lie. I don't give them counterfeit money. They don't give me crappy coffee. Yeah. Usually. <laughs>
1: yeah. And I mean, well, in terms of kind of something that I'm thinking of in terms of, you um, Uh, Let's see. What's the word I'm looking for as a maybe kind of caveat to this is sometimes when we when it comes to sort of narcissistic individuals So they might do and say all of these things where let's say they'll say well I'm not being deceitful, right? And let's say I'm being honest with the person that I am with. but what they tend to also do is they tend to find people that they can take Advantage of so Mm -hmm. even though they are being thankful and even though kind of at least ostensibly and outwardly they are being respectful It's really because the person has this sort of what um, dr. Craig Malkin calls an echoist personality, right? I'm sure you know a lot about this. So, oh, I know Craig. Chris. Yeah, this yeah, yeah I right. <laughs> yeah. Hi, Craig. Right. And his work is phenomenal. And yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. definitely. And I would definitely re- recommend checking out Rethinking Narcissism, which is one of the best books I've ever read on the yeah, topic. I can, and just, I can second that. Definitely. And in terms mm. of just the, the field of psychology in general. And so interestingly enough, so what narcissists tend to do is they tend to find people who are kind of more like that, who are more sort of people pleasing. And their right. argument on the other hand is, well, I mean, it's consensual. And so some of the work that I deal with in my practice is sort of helping people on the other end of the spectrum realize how, you know Mm -hmm. what, the consensuality of it is not necessarily black and white, that this person specifically sought you out because he knew that he could sort of get whatever it was that he was looking for and that he wouldn't need to give anything back in return.
2: Yeah, very good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so um, also the other kind of main thing about the book that I wanted to focus on today was so my kind of subspecialty in terms of my clinical work is trauma, and in particular trauma and resilience. And so I wanted to focus on the beginnings of Batman, the origin story, which to me is pretty much the significance of the entire kind of series of how, you know, he as a human being and uh, as a complex person that he was, how he came about. And so in terms of, well, I just kind of want to preface this with this really great story that we often tell kind of, um, let's say, trauma survivors or our clients. So um, there was this sort of, and this is sort of a kind of, uh, it's sort of a fictionalized story. I'm not Mm -hmm. really sure that this happened. I mean, it's been retold so many times. I don't know how much of it is true, but it definitely gets to the point. And so this clinical psychologist is essentially dealing with two brothers who were pretty much they were they had the same type of upbringing. So they were raised by an alcoholic, well, an alcoholic father who abused them physically and mentally, and he did the same thing to their mother. So one person ended up becoming this really sort of hotshot, successful lawyer who had his own family and who was sort of widely known and widely respected, and was sort of very important in his community and partook in sort of various philanthropic endeavors. And then his brother, actually, at the other end of the spectrum, became a drug addict himself, or rather an alcoholic himself. And so he actually he also was married, but then he actually, recipro- not reciprocated, I'm sorry, um, he replicated the patterns that his dad had. And so when this clinical psychologist ended up interviewing them, she asked, first she asked the one brother, you know, the successful one. So she says like, you know, seeing as how your dad was, how is it that you turned out this way? And so he answers something along the lines of, well, I mean, the answer's kind of in your question. I mean, how could it have been any different? And so then she asked the other brother and the other brother actually responds with the same answer. And he says, well, you see who my dad was, how could it have been any different? And so interestingly enough, in terms of trauma, you can actually have these two people who are virtually, at least genetically speaking, very, very similar and who come from a very similar environment and still have very sort of disparate paths. And so in terms of the Batman story, I was wondering, how come kind of in your assessment of it, and especially in the sort of context of philosophical thinking, how do you think he was able to not only just overcome that trauma to become a successful person, but also sort of take it upon himself to become this sort of vigilante and this hero and to make sure that No one else ever experienced anything like that again, at least to the extent that that was possible. Uh, (laughs) I know, that was a lot there, sorry.
2: No, no, I I really like that question. I I have to admit, I haven't thought that much about it. That sounds like something that my friend Travis Langley, who wrote Batman of Psychology, would be uh, better suited to talk about. I, I, you know, for, for my part, I would say we don't know and, and it could have turned out other ways. And the nice thing is we sort of have, um, alternate versions of, of Batman in the comics that, that show other ways he could have gone. Yeah. Uh, there's one villain that has shown up several times. I, his name is escaping me now, um, uh, but uh, the Batman fans will know from Batman Special Number One, drawn by Michael Golden. Uh, you all know who he is. Um, but he was his—he his, his, was the mirror image. His family were actually criminals, and his parents were shot by a police officer when they were trying to stop a crime. So that was sort of the mirror image. And of course, this kid, instead of growing up to be a hero, you know, stopping crime, he grew up to be a villain, you know, stopping police. Uh, the, the better example, now that I think about it, is there was an imagine well, not an imaginary story, but kind of a you know, relatively otherworldly story for a Batman story where uh, the Phantom Stranger, who's kind of this ethereal, uh, other dimensional being, comes to Batman and Robin and say, you have to come to this other dimension where time you know is behind us. And so the Waynes haven't been killed yet. You have to come and stop the Waynes from being killed. So the little boy doesn't suffer, and, and Batman, of course, sees this as an opportunity to, you know, he couldn't save his parents, but now he can save another version of his parents and actually save himself the trauma. Wow. And and you know, they get to this other dimension. And they see things aren't quite up to that, you know, time yet. They haven't gone and seen the movie, and they're walking outside the movie. And Robin actually asks him, "Do we really want to do this?" You know, and Batman thinks he's not, so why why wouldn't we want to do this? He says, well, if this kid's going to grow up to be Batman, and he's obviously going to save a lot of lives down the line. Yeah. Who are we to save these two people's lives and prevent this great hero coming? It's kind of the opposite of killing Hitler in the crib thing. Right? Yeah. Is you're, you're almost killing Batman in the crib by saving his parents. Right. And in the end, you know, Batman realizes this, and this is another great moral conflict for Batman, you know, thanks a lot, Robin. <laughs> But, you know, in the end, they do save the Waynes. Yeah. And in the last page of the story, it shows what happens to the little Bruce Wayne, is that he still becomes Batman, oh, wow. but out of being inspired by the guy who saved his parents' life.
1: Wow! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is really amazing. Wow.
2: So, but, but he becomes – it's but it's implied that he's a Batman with, you know, obviously wow. – a healthier, less traumatic background. Right. Yeah, still trauma having your parents attacked in an alley, and having a scary guy in a blue suit save them. Right. But it, at least it ended well, and it became an inspiration for the for this version of young Bruce Wayne to go on and become a hero. And you know, you can kind of assume that he becomes a hero with a little healthier mental background yeah. and less vengeful, because he's not—he's literally not avenging murders.
1: Wow! I, I was just I, I was floored by that. Oh my god! I need like a second. I, I want to read the comments. I
2: wish I, I wrote, wrote it, but you know,
1: <laughs> that was just wow! My god, that was really amazing. I,
2: I cited in the book. I can again. I can't remember the issue number, but I, I cited in the book.
1: Yeah, and I mean that really says a lot about a person. Sort of maybe not necessarily genetics, but their predisposition and the combination of their environment. Because I mean, I guess one could argue that Batman's upbringing up until that point, and even his relationship with Alfred, and obviously kind of in conjunction with having his parents saved in front of him. That could have kind of all together been the sort of this, this smoltering pot, right? That put together this person that became Batman.
2: Yeah. So, so amazing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, because, I mean, there's a, there's a lot said in the comics, especially between Batman and Leslie Tompkins, who herself is a doctor. You know, Bruce Wayne's father was a doctor. Yeah. And so he gets a, a lot of his, he often says in the comics, you know, that I, I try to save people because that's what my father did, yeah. obviously in a different way. Mm-hmm. And Leslie Tompkins even at one point says that, I think you could have been a brilliant doctor. Mm-hmm. And he says, yeah, but this is what I was meant to do. I mean, I'm saving people my own way. I'm living up to my father's example. And so it's kind of like what you said. It's all these different things that merged together and just came out a particular way in the Bruce Wayne we know. But they didn't have to come out that way.
1: Yeah. I mean in the alternate sort of comic or the alternate universe, I mean this is going to be a simplistic question. But I definitely still want to ask it. Is Batman happier?
2: In that other universe, yeah. I would say, I would, I would probably, you know, all else the same, of course. I mean, yeah. he's got his parents. Well, you know, you don't know what happens to his parents after that. But, you know, chances are they're not, you know, killed in as violent a way as they were in the, the main Batman story. Right. So I, I would say, that's why I said, I, I said you know, you presume that he's a little, you know, better mentally grounded. hmm And a, a little... Uh, even, you know, he can, you know, a lot of contrast is drawn between Batman's first Robin and Dick Grayson, who grows up to be the hero Nightwing, mm-hmm. and that he is kind of the softer side of Batman. Yeah, he, he, His fan base is, is, you know, much more female-based than Batman's is, because they see in Nightwing, you know, a character with the same drive towards justice and doing right as Batman, but someone that handles it a little better, even though his parents were killed... In virtually the same way that Bruce Wayne's were, Mm -hmm. but he's kept more of a positive attitude by understanding that he's not just avenging those deaths. He actually puts more of a positive spin on it and says, I'm helping people and I'm actually kind of enjoying doing it. I mean, that's all. You know, Dick Grayson was different from Bruce Wayne in the one aspect that he was a performer.
0: Yeah.
2: He was a he was a depth-defying acrobat, yeah. and so you know he carries on this same acrobatic flourish as Robin and then as Nightwing, but also he he has refused to let the darkness get to him. That Batman at times seems almost determined not to be happy, you know, to, to keep the edge. You know, in the in the very recent uh, continuity, uh, Catwoman, Batman, and Catwoman were engaged. And Catwoman left him at the altar, and her reasoning, according to her own thinking, was that you know she wants him to be happy, she wants to be happy herself, but she's afraid what it would do to the world if Batman were happy. You know, even if even if he still, you know, fought crime as Batman, would that take his edge away? Yeah. You know, kind of the same thing Robin was worried about if they'd save that alternate universe, Thomas and Martha Wayne and 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 you know but you know batman even himself batman continuously sort of defeats his own attempts at being happy and you have to wonder if this is a subconscious drive to maintain his edge well you know dick grayson never had this edge though he should have he very easily could have so that kind of goes back to your other question is you know in that way dick grayson is yet another parallel to bruce wayne but Dick Grayson took it in a different direction.
1: Yeah. And so, and,
2: you know, this is even with, you know, Bruce Wayne had Alfred raising him. He had Leslie Tompkins raising him. You know, he, he wasn't raised to be a superhero. Obviously, he came to this spot on himself. But young Dick Grayson, after his parents were killed, was raised by Batman. I mean, he was raised by the guy yeah. who constantly keeps himself in darkness. And yet he, he went the opposite way.
1: Mm-hmm. And so in terms of my own clinical work, I mean, and it's something that we constantly focus on, on the, and kind of on this show. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to sort of thinking styles and seeing the world in particular ways. So, and, and I think this sort of speaks to the trauma aspect of it, sort of the way these two different people viewed, let's say, kind of when one person said oh, you know, like, how could it have been otherwise? And his brother said the same thing. And so our perspectives are so important. And I think they're so key in who we become. And so oftentimes, especially when it's sort of, when it comes to kind of these irrational perspectives that people have, I often tend to ask people a question that the sort of great existential, uh, well, philosopher, psychotherapist, or Yalom would ask. And so he would say, what's the payoff of it? So if, let's say, this is your perspective on things, right? So let's say for Batman, right? If, let's say, if you have the most cynical kind of possible view, right, what is the point of it? when well, we know, rationally speaking, it's indefensible. And so some clients would say, well, I mean, how can I live without it? And so I'm thinking of it in terms of or in the context of Batman, perhaps maybe some part of him thought that if he sort of, let's say, if he let go of that particular worldview, that there was no way that he could be that kind of crime fighting vigilante, or maybe he just wouldn't have been as good at it. And interestingly enough, again, kind of going back to sort of perspectives that the great another existentialist, Viktor Frankl. I mean, he essentially Mm -hmm. right, and he essentially argued that for us as human beings, we need to have healthier perspectives. We need to see the world in a much more sort of in the light of potential. We need to see what this particular suffering can do for us, what it can teach us, and how it in some way can make us rise up from our ashes. Because if we don't do that, essentially, what does happen is we're incredibly miserable, and we know depression has all sorts of harmful physical and other mental health effects right yeah so i mean so what do you think it was with batman in terms of his world perception what do you think that how do you think he viewed other people because like from watching him i can never get a sense of it so on the one hand it seems like he actually likes them and he wants to keep them alive but then on the other hand it seems like he sort of abhors him or abhors them and just doesn't really want anything to do with him it's like there's this period of i remember of time where he was a complete recluse and he did just was completely disconnected from humanity so it seems pretty complex.
2: Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, again, that's something I, I don't necessarily touch on that much. But the, the reclusiveness is just 100% dedication to the mission. Yeah. And, you know, he doesn't... You know, there's there's lots of periods in the comics that he goes through where he drives away everybody except for Alfred, maybe. But he drives away all the Robins, Nightwings, Batgirls, Huntresses, you know, all, all the all the Justice League, Superman, everybody that he usually works with. And he says it's just me, or you know, tells Alfred it's just me and you. Yeah. And Alfred's great. And uh, but you know, th- again, these are usually driven by as well as his own anxieties and hang-ups, Just you know. He has to do whatever will will help him pursue the mission. The mission is everything, 100% dedication, and, you know, the, the normal average person he doesn't have time for. And it's not that he looks down on them. I mean, he's devoted his life to helping them.
1: Yeah.
2: And, and you know, a lot of the – one part I, ask, I emphasize in the book because, you know, a, a related ethical question that people always ask is aren't there better ways to help people with wayne's fortune than dressing up like a bat and building fancy machines (laughs) and i I say well yeah but you know there's a lot of evidence in the comics that he does donate the majority of his wealth or the majority of his income and he's you know i say he's entitled to take a little of that and play dress up if he wants to and he's definitely doing good in that part of his life as well (laughs) but he he does engage in a lot of charitable activities and his charitable activities tend to be focused on the poor and children especially which makes sense you know running orphanages uh, funding children's uh, activities hmm. uh, uh, boys and girls clubs uh, youth centers that kind of thing and you know I, I think it's one of these things where he wants to help people but he figures the best way he can help people is stay out of their lives just try to help them mainly protect them I talk about how his his version of utilitarianism is a very negative one he, 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 you know, at least his activities as Batman are not geared towards making people's lives better. It's geared towards preventing people's lives from getting worse, mainly due to the effects of crime. While as Bruce Wayne, his charitable activities definitely help to make their lives better. So he's he's covering both bases in that way, which I don't think he gets enough credit for. It. But but yeah, he is reclusive. I mean, this may just be part of his personality. But it also, again, like like everything except his refusal to kill, yeah. it comes down to what is going to enable me to pursue the mission, live up to the promise I made my parents, all that. And, you know, it, it, it may be, you know, again, I'll let my psychologist friends speak to this more, more authoritatively, but it, that may be a rationalization. I mean, this may be covering other things why he doesn't want to do this. And so, I mean, you know, we, it's like, you know, procrastinating, you know, I really need to write this paper, but well, my kitchen's really dirty. Uh, mm-hmm. You can see behind me, it's, it's very clean
1: because
2: uh, <laughs> I didn't do any procrastinating this morning.
0: That's true. Yeah. I have an interesting question for you. Uh, okay. I'm not sure if you've thought about it, maybe you have. What would you say if we had to speculate is the philosophy of the joker,
2: uh nihilism that that seems to be the the general consensus is he just you know he has no values and he wants to create chaos he wants to show the world that their values are all wrong and they don't matter Hmm. you know i i I actually don't think about them I, i focus on the heroes i don't think about the villains so much but you know he's of course a very fascinating one but the consensus seems to be among people who have thought about it more that it's just nihilism he just wants to deny that there's any values there's anything of importance in the world and by basically creating chaos he's trying to show that
1: and in a way, I mean, if you kind of conceptualize the story as a whole, it seems like the Batman character is not only, I mean, trying to uphold order, but he's also trying to uphold just morality and ethics as a whole. Whereas these villains are constantly saying like, no, 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 we're going to destroy everything, including and most especially that system of ethics that you so challenge or that you so cherish.
2: Right. 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 It's, a, it's the same thing whenever Captain, any of Captain America's villains, you know, Captain America, of course, is a patriotically based hero. And so many of his foes tend to be Nazis or fascists, mm-hmm. and and you know their, their their goal is not only to defeat Captain America it's to defeat America, show America that Captain America is a false idol, that democracy doesn't work, that capitalism doesn't work, that freedom doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So in the same way, if you if you say that Batman is you know however flawed and inconsistent he is, he is a very moral person, he is trying to enforce justice and good, then naturally his villains would be would you know counteract that.
1: And so I kind of have a little bit more of a personal question. So what sparked your interest in superheroes and especially and in particular, what sparked your interest in analyzing them from a sort of philosophical perspective?
2: Uh, well, you know, I've always been a superhero fan mm-hmm. ever since I was a little kid. I mean, when I was a little kid, you know, around six or seven. I remember watching, uh, well, the Batman series and, and reruns.
0: Yes. You That's know,
2: okay. in black and white uh, and also the Super Friends cartoon. Mm-hmm. which I think that was actually new when I was watching it. But, you know, and these things got me interested in them, and then gradually I got into comic books and, and uh, reading comic books and, uh, you know, collecting them. And I, I took a while, I actually took a break from that when I was in uh, college and young adulthood. Mm-hmm. And I, I got into it actually after my kids were born. I got back into it. Uh, I met a, I just w- walking my daughter in her stroller and walked by a newly opening comic shop and talked to the guy in who was about the same age as me, had the same experiences that I did, read the same comics, also a Batman fan as I was back when I was a kid, and I just jumped wholeheartedly back into it. And it was like you know part of my life that had been missing all this you know time that I wasn't reading them. And, of course, by this time, I was also an academic. I was also a philosopher. And, um, you know, just you know, a few years before that, you know, Bill Irwin, who's been on your program, uh, developed the the philosophy and pop culture genre mm-hmm. with The Simpsons and Philosophy and Seinfeld and Philosophy. And I was a huge fan of these books. Yeah. And I started writing him. You know, dear Mr. Irwin, <laughs> uh, you know, how about this? How about that? How about, and I, I, I remember I sent him once a pitch for superheroes and philosophy and all the different angles and everything. And he wrote me back and said, Yeah, we're doing that. And he sent me the, the I can't remember if it was a web page at that point. But he sent me the, the solicitation for the book yeah. and, you know, three quarters of what the abstract for the book was, was stuff that I thought of as well.
1: Oh, that's really cool.
2: So I'm like, okay, I, I, you know, but he he learned from that, that, you know, I I, I understood what the series was about. Mm-hmm. And so he invited me to start writing for for chapter for books in the series. And I kept pitching ideas. And finally, I pitched, you know, when the... The Dark Knight was due to come out, or a couple of years before the Dark Knight was due to come out. I said, "Well, there's this Batman movie coming out, and the, Latin, the first Batman movie, Batman, well, the first of this group of Batman movies, Batman Begins, came out and is very well regarded. And Batman is a fascinating character and very popular hero and everything. And I said, I think this would make a great book, and he agreed. The publisher agreed, and that's it. And then I, I did uh, six of these books in six years." Did Batman, Watchmen, Iron Man, Green Lantern, Avengers, and Superman. And then I decided to try writing my own complete volume rather than an edited collection. Yeah. And, you know, not only would this be all the work of one author, which, you know, is not better or worse. It's just different. It's a unified voice. But also, it wouldn't be a survey of philosophy such as the edited books usually are. They have a little ethics, a little metaphysics, a little logic, etc. And my book, because I'm an ethicist, would be all ethics. So that's what the Virtues of Captain America was, and then now, obviously, Batman and Ethics.
1: And which superhero would you say you identify with most? Oh, that's a cool (laughs) one.
2: Well, obviously, I'd like to identify with Captain America. Mm-hmm. I mean, no <laughs> like you kind of yeah. have to, yeah. Uh-huh. But no, I, I, you know, other than you know, this is one point I want to bring up based on something you said before, but it got rolling and I didn't get it in, is that you know you can look up to Captain America's virtue without necessarily agreeing with every aspect of his moral code. Mm-hmm. In other words, you can look up to him and say, I want to be as good as he is. But maybe in a different way. Maybe I want to focus on this virtue more than that one. Or maybe I would make different choices. That's why I think Captain America plays such an interesting role in the Marvel Universe. Is that he is the moral center of the Marvel Universe. But not everyone agrees with him on everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Iron Man famously disagrees with him more than anybody else. But he still looks up to Captain America. You know, even if they don't agree on everything. So when I say, I, you know, I, I, you know, Captain, I identify with Captain America, I mean that sounds kind of arrogant, the way I set up Captain America to be such a perfect being, you know, obviously I identify
1: with Captain America.
2: <laughs> no, but I mean that's, that's who I would like to identify with, and I think we have the same ideas about wanting to be good and wanting to do good. Uh, Batman, obviously there there's you know, the inconsistency and in everything, which I have, but I you know so I guess I would identify with Batman in that sense, though I wouldn't want to. Mm-hmm. But I, I do really envy his dedication and his focus. I mean that single-minded drive. Think how much I could write if I had if I had that drive and wasn't so worried about keeping my kitchen clean.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, finally the thing from the Fantastic Four. Oh,
1: that's an interesting one. Wow.
2: Uh, just because he's just Wow, this, this is um, – just, you know, he's uh, – he's
0: – I
2: can't find a, the word for it. Is it an
0: appearance-based thing? Because like on the outside he – Well, like, yeah,
2: I'm not that pretty.
0: <laughs> but, um, <laughs> no, I'm not trying to say that. That's <laughs> you funny. walked into that. But
2: so no, but that, you that's really into. it though. The fact that he thinks he's a monster and the, the fact that he's always down on himself. and But he's still – One of the best heroes in the Marvel universe, because even though he thinks he's a monster, even though he imagines that kids are afraid of him, even though they're not, Mm -hmm. even though he imagines that he's an outcast, you know, he still rises above all that and is one of the greatest heroes in the Marvel universe. So he's he doesn't look like Chris Evans. You know, he 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 doesn't have the swagger of a, of a Tony Stark. He he doesn't have, you know. I mean, you know, all the all the most of the male and female heroes in comics are are beautiful, mm-hmm. and and here's the thing: who, by definition, what makes him the thing is that he's got this horrible, monstrous, rocky appearance. Mm-hmm. And you know, he could very well. I mean, this is just a different type of trauma, right? Yeah. I mean, they make a big deal out of the the transformation of the Fantastic Four. You know, the other three were transformed in ways that can pass, yep. you know. Uh, the thing can't. Yep. And the other three were given powers that that really, that that m- may have slight drawbacks, but for the most part make them better, enhance their abilities. The thing got bigger and stronger, but at a great cost, at least in his mind. Yep. At a great cost. And there's something about that, you know, kind of that, 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 persistent consciousness that you're flawed or at least the impression the self-impression that you're flawed but you don't take that out on people yeah you know you don't take that you know as contrasted with Dr. Doom mm-hmm. who wears the metal faceplate mm-hmm. the, the Fantastic yeah. Four you know, mm-hmm. behind me um, who wears the faceplate to hide his, his hideous Same. grotesque disfigurement but the, the secret is that has been, you know, hinted at of the comics is originally his disfigurement was just a tiny scar. Yeah, his face but he was good. so vain that he had to hide that. And, of course, once he put the, the molten mask on his face, it did scar his entire face. Oh, wow. But the whole thing was initiated because he got a tiny little scar on his cheek. And he was so vain he, he had to hide this, this, this disfigurement. As opposed to the thing who is literally a creature covered with rocks but he doesn't take it out on anybody. Wow. He he just goes out, and even if people are scared, even if people are run, he's still trying to help people, he's still trying to be a hero. Yeah.
1: And I would say that that also goes back to his perspective of what's important. Right. Yeah. Wow, that's really incredible.
0: And actually, if I recall, I, I used to watch the Fantastic Four uh, cartoon back in the day. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the thing, he struggled with a lot of that stuff, like the way he appeared to people in the movies too. Um, and you'd see how he'd overcome that struggle by realizing what is right, what's the greater good. And he'd overcome those inner obstacles at the times when it was most needed. So, I, I, yeah, I can, I can appreciate like why you, you like him. I, I could see that. Um, for some reason, I don't know why I was thinking about Superman uh, as an interesting character. Because on the outside, he's perfect. Like, he's physical perfection. Right, but internally he's subject to a lot of emotional turmoil, yep. uh, ebbs and flows, and stuff like that. And that is kind of his own worst enemy. So um, it's it's interesting because the thing on the outside doesn't look great, but internally his inner t- turmoil is the thing that he has to get past. And that's kind of the same thing for Superman, even though Superman doesn't uh, definitely doesn't struggle with the same thing. The thing struggles with in that sense. Um, but that's a totally that's a tangent right there. I was—I don't know. I was okay. to get that out there. I was just thinking about <laughs> no, Superman okay, yeah. for some reason. Yeah, well, Superman. Well, is it
2: is interesting. You know, I you just made me think of it. You know, Superman's main internal struggle, at least the last several decades, has is kind of almost been a, a Pinocchio, you know, thing. He wants to be human. I mean, he's not human. He wants to be human. I mean, you know, morally speaking, he's human. But he realizes that he's an alien, that he's more powerful than everybody, that he has to constantly watch himself. But he he was raised to be a human by his parents, the Kents. Yeah. And so, morally speaking, psychologically speaking, he's human. But you know, metaphysically speaking, of course, he's not. Mm-hmm. And so he's, you know, he wants to be a part of human society while at the same time he can't. And can't not only because he has to constantly watch his abilities, but because he feels responsibility to save people, to use his powers to save people. He can't just pass. Yeah. And while the the thing, he is human, but obviously doesn't look it. Yeah. And so it's kind of a, a, a flip,
0: that way. <laughs> which is interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so as kind of one of our final questions here, I would want to know from you, Mark. So what do you think in terms of all of the superhero sort of stories and comic books? What do you, for you, obviously, subjectively speaking, what was the most valuable lesson that you've learned from any of them or from all of them together?
2: Oh, wow. <laughs> that's a good yeah, that's I, I think that, you know, this is this is going to this is going to probably hopefully may might sound cleverer than I meant it to be. <laughs> <laughs> but really, I mean, you know, a lot of times when we teach ethics and when we teach philosophy, we tend to do it in an overly simplistic way, especially if we're just teaching a one-semester course to students, an intro to ethics, where we have to cover every every school of ethics in a week or two, yeah. you know, a few hours of lecture, a couple of readings, and you give a very simplistic view of it. And that's, that's necessary. I mean, it's hard to do anything else. I'm not criticizing any of us. Uh, you know, me or any of my other instructors in philosophy. But probably the one thing I've learned from comics, and this can also be learned from many areas of fiction, it doesn't have anything to do with superheroes, is that, you know, what one thing that I think is great about fiction and why, you know, the, my favorite philosophy philosophers as well as philosophy, philosophy instructors incorporate fiction into their courses and into their papers and books is that a lot of times the, the situations that are written in the fiction give the kind of moral ambiguity mm-hmm. that, that you experience in real life moral decisions. And you know the fact that superheroes encounter these situations with all these various moral aspects to them, You know, and, and, you know, the one thing I draw out of this is how important the the faculty of judgment is. Mm -hmm. It's not enough to know the rules and the, you know, maximize utility and don't use people without their consent and all these things. Those are very easy to say in the abstract. Mm -hmm. But when you're dealing with a real life moral situation where a lot of those things conflict, such as they do for Batman, such as they even do for Captain America and Superman that's where you have to use moral judgment and i think a lot of times in the way that we explain that we as philosophers explain ethics it's overly simplistic again by necessity almost yeah. but the, the thing that i got from from comic books is you know there are these huge fantastical blown up exaggerated situations but when you get down to their the heart of them they're they're not that different from our average moral conflicts and it shows how People can balance the various aspects of these moral dilemmas
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah. through a, a fantastic, uh, entertaining story. Yes,
1: <laughs> most definitely.
0: That's actually honestly why I like superhero. I also read a lot of anime too. Uh, I know it's mm-hmm. yeah, it's not the same thing as comics, but it's no, similar. You know,
2: it's close yeah. enough, yeah. Yeah, I and I mean a great novel. I mean, you know, the, how many how many great novels were also or novelists were also philosophers, whether they're recognized as such or not. I mean, <laughs> Leo Tolstoy of course is recognized as a philosopher. Right. But I'd say a lot of other great novelists should be or uh, even if they're not recognized as philosophers cuz we have to protect the guild. Yeah. But they they, you know, they, they can certainly be used. Absolutely. in in philosophy because you know a lot of these situations the stories are you are, are known they're known widely enough yeah. and that's why if you if you say you know I, I use the Batman Joker thing to, to talk about the trolley dilemma the trolley problem mm-hmm. and in the, the fact that you know do you do kill the one person to save the five and that's basically the same situation Batman's in do I kill the Joker to save the countless people he killed yeah. so do I kill the one to save the many and you know there's a you know my original chapter in batman philosophy you know why doesn't batman kill the joker was a very simple you know comparison of this to the trolley problem in the book i actually go much more in length into it Mm -hmm. and talk about all the ways in which the batman joker situation is not a typical trolley problem you know for instance you know in the typical trolley problem the the one person that's going to be killed if you divert the trolley is not the person that caused the trolley to malfunction in the first place. What the Joker is, the Joker is the one that literally put all these people in, in danger of losing their lives. Right. So, I mean, if you, you may be hesitant to kill the innocent bystander that would be killed by the trolley, but you know, the Joker is not the innocent bystander. He's anything but. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a lot of these aspects that make this problem different from the trolley problem, but it's a, it's a nice way to start. And again, takes that very simple thought experiment, which I think is fantastic on its own and makes it, richer through applying it to you know what is admittedly a fantastical fictional account
1: yeah and so alan do you have any final questions for mark before we go
0: just that i'm just i not even a question i'm actually super interested like from having you know listened to you talk i'm like oh this is cool it's kind of like listening to like one of my friends talk about Aww. uh like uh, comics that they love superheroes that their ideas about that uh, but of course from from an author, you know,
2: but that's one, that's one thing that Bill Irwin taught me when I started writing for these books. One thing, you know, he had this, this advice that he'd give new authors Mm -hmm. and he'd say, you're not writing a philosophy article. You're not writing a philosophy book. You're writing about something you love for people that love that thing, but you're teaching a little philosophy in the way, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, along the way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he said, write like a fan, uh huh. Wow. You know, don't hide the fact that you love this stuff, you know, relish in the fact that you love this stuff and use that excitement, use that enthusiasm to convey the philosophical ideas. Yeah. And that's what I've done ever since. So thank you, Bill. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <And> yeah, <laughs> yeah you better yeah, be it's watching always them. grateful to Bill. Here. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And so Mark, is there any final thing that were final thoughts, sort of ideas or thoughts that you want to share with our, or- our audience before we go?
2: Oh, I, I think I'm done. I think I'm out.
1: <laughs> this was a great talk, though. Well, yeah, I mean, wow, I'm so happy that you came on. Thank you again so, so much. And everybody thank check you, out Batman in having...
0: Ethics and Other Works by Mark White.
1: Yeah, most definitely. And so, All of it. <laughs> And so I want to thank our audience for obviously tuning in. And so we have a lot of, I would say, not a lot, but a decent amount of sort of guests coming up, and mostly philosophers. And obviously, sort of, we're going to continue the trend. And is so, that is that
2: what those people are there for? Yeah. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> They're all waiting in line. <laughs> You're
2: reading so, my stuff. You're making so, my kitchen messy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then, just so as a kind of uh, last plug or last advertisement for the show, I uh, I kind of advise everybody to check out a place called or a website called Pierre Vera that uh, that business that site and it's P E A R dot V E R A dot S I T E and so Vera does phenomenal catering, which obviously all of us have at some point, at least on this side of this side of the show. I definitely have. She's yeah. Great. yeah. Yeah. So she does. Yeah. She, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she does phenomenal catering and I definitely advise all you guys to check it out. And what about
0: that um, app that you're talking about for uh, psychologists uh, psychotherapists oh
1: yes yeah, so there's this really great app on top of that so it's called team AVO as an avocado A-V-A-O so it's T-E-A-M so A-V-A-O.com mm-hmm. and so it's kind of like a tinder service for therapists and clients so clients would essentially sort of put in all of their let's say information and, and so let's say the person on the other side or the people at the other side they would actually try to match them with the best possible candidate in terms of Therapists, so and they could decline the match they can accept the match but the idea is that clients and therapists well mostly for clients they get essentially the type of therapist that they're looking for and it is like tinder but the beauty is unlike let's say (laughs) psychology today right where let's say it's very hard to actually get an appointment with team it's virtually simple and then you have your sort of pick of therapist to choose from Cool. So, Alan, any final thoughts?
0: No, no. Mark, just want to say thank you so much for coming on. It
1: was a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank I, you. I, I it was. I can't, I, I can't wait for our audience to hear this show. And have a <laughs> great day. See you. You too. Bye, man. God, I hope
0: and everybody, thanks for watching. <laughs>